0: The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find more information about Jason at www.jasonderoshi.com. I'm so delighted that you keep coming back
1: to class. That encourages me that you're hungering for more of the Word It's certainly a joy for me to be able to shepherd you in this way week after week. And God's allowing me slowly to get more into some of your lives personally, and that's a great gift. I'm teaching this week and next week, and then as you know, I leave for Ethiopia. When I'm gone, Brother Steve's going to teach the first week, and then. Dr. Paul Lim is going to come. Uh, Many of you know Dr. Lim. He was a missionary with his wife, Dr. Lim. Uh, Paul and Susan Lim were missionaries in Ethiopia for several years, and God's brought them back here, and they're actively part of Bethlehem. And um, so Dr. Lim has agreed to... uh, Teach the course, teach the course, teach the class from um, the week before Easter until the end of the semester. And the reason that's happening is because there's different seasons in life, and I'm coming to the culmination of a six year season. And that is, Pastor Jason writes books in a month. I'm working on one that's, I'm hoping, going to be done after six years. Um, so it's supposed to be done this summer, and so I'm gonna, um, as I've consulted with my wife and with some of the other leaders in the class, uh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna use the hours that I prepare during this week to add to all the other hours I'm putting toward trying to push to see this book come to an end. It's a large commentary on Zephaniah. I've already got a number of smaller ones um the niv zondervan study bible notes those that little tiny commentary uh this coming spring is going to be coming out with crossway a, a little bit bigger commentary on zephaniah um in the esv bible expository commentary series and and then god's let me make a big book a bigger bigger book on these 53 verses it'll come out to about 350 pages um and we're just in the final push. So I, I just ask you to pray with me. Um, Teresa and I are going to be delighted. We'll be in here every week, uh, eager to learn from Dr. Lim. Some of the things he's going to share about, bioethics, that's the focus. And um, so there's different kinds of doctors. My kids have said, why don't you do surgery? You're a doctor, right, Daddy? And uh, this is... Uh, He's one of those medical ones, um, and so he, but, but he's, he's just got a, a sweetheart for Jesus, he's very knowledgeable, and these are topics that matter. So, like what? Abortion, in vitro fertilization, pre-implantation genetic diagnoses, embryonic stem cell research, cloning, three-parent conception, gene editing, brain death and organ do- donation. A number of these things were things we wouldn't have even been considering decades ago. And now now they're right in the face of us as believers, and we want to to understand how to handle them um, biblically in a way that would honor God, how how we should be thinking about these hard things. So I I just encourage you to come uh, with me, with my wife, and just week after week to the end of May, and then Lord willing, I'll come back next fall, uh, more of Isaiah, and maybe we'll be done by Christmas. Um, but Isaiah 53 is readying us for Easter, and that's where we're going today, Isaiah 53. So I invite you to open your Bibles This whole study has been extremely rich for my soul, I hope it's been good for you. Um, In Isaiah as a whole, and then in this chapter especially, Um, I've never taught on Isaiah for more than two weeks uh, in my classes, and so this is is just fresh every week for me, fresh every week for you. uh, God has been very kind, I think, to meet us. So we've looked at the, su- the servant's divine human nature and homeliness in verses 1 and 2. His experience with suffering in verse 3. Last week, his substitutionary nature, the, the substitutionary nature of his suffering. And then this week, Lord willing, we'll see the servant's humble response to his suffering and the human and divine perspective on that suffering. Let's pray. Precious Lord, you are precious simply because of who you are and yet you have awakened us to recognize that preciousness. And so we say thank you. Thank you that you, the God who is most holy, who is over all things, has disclosed yourself to us in the person of Christ and you have entered in love into this world in order to save sinners like us. Thank you for awakening faith in our souls and letting us see you as beautiful, letting our our spiritual senses find uh, savory and sweet beauty in you. I pray that you'd meet us today, moving us more into your likeness, awakening more affection for the greatness of Jesus. I pray that you would now let your word be clear and let our hearts feel appropriately about what we observe and understand and evaluate. Through Jesus I pray, the only one who can make it happen. Amen. All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned To his own way, verse 6, And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's where we ended last week. This servant Savior suffered on behalf of sinners like you and me. He entered in and was slashed. He was pierced. The text tells us, for our transgression, where we should have been the ones on the cross, he took our place. And in doing so, satisfied the just wrath of God against sinners, against rebels, against his enemies. So we come and we now wonder how did Jesus respond to such affliction? What others did, verse 7, he was oppressed, he was afflicted. Both of those are passive. He was oppressed by others, he was afflicted by others. And yet as we'll see when we get to verse 10, there was a ultimate divine mover in all of the oppression and in all of the affliction. He was oppressed, he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. And that's just amazing. It's not the the sense of someone whose heart is ugly... And now they're confronted with sin, and they react negatively. Rather, it's the one whose heart is absolutely pure, who's being accused for something that was not his, and he does not open his mouth in order that the purpose of God through this suffering might be ultimately fulfilled. His response was silence. Before Caiaphas in the council, Mark 14, and the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, have you no answer to make? You said you'd destroy the temple of God? Who do you think you are? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent and made no answer. Again the high priest asked, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Silence. Before Pilate. Pilate again asked him, Have you no answer to make? See how many charges they're bringing against you? But Jesus made no further answer so that Pilate was just amazed. After Pilate comes Herod. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad for he had long desired to see him. Because he had heard about this man, he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length. No answer. No answer. No answer that could have halted the whole process that would culminate in the cross. No answer in order to absolutely fulfill what Isaiah said was going to happen. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, He was quiet. Now, I jumped automatically and said, look, we're looking at Jesus. When Isaiah says this, we're supposed to see in these texts before Caiaphas and the rest of the priests, before Pilate, before Herod, we're supposed to see fulfillment. But none of those texts actually said this was in order to fulfill what Isaiah had to say. But we do have a text that actually cites these words and is exactly explicit. Anybody know where it is? I heard something. Wow, I've seen something in Psalm 44 about... Psalm 44? Yeah. Okay. That's kind of what you're looking for. Well, the beauty of, of the Psalms... Is that it portrays a royal figure who triumphs through great tribulation. And the New Testament authors all the time are citing the Psalter and applying it straight to Jesus and saying, look at the suffering of this this royal figure. It's being, it's as if it's as if the Psalter contains the very words of the Christ. It's as if the Psalter, like, I, like the servant songs in Isaiah, were direct prophecies. That, that it's, it's as if they're reading it that way. But Psalm 44 doesn't say the name Jesus in it, right? And that's what I'm wondering. I don't want to... I, I want to... Oh, that Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch. What a guy. <laughs> Very good. So that's the only place actually in the Bible that our text is explicitly quoted. So let's look at that text. Acts 8, 32 and 35. You remember this black African came to Jerusalem in order to worship. And God had great plans for him. That he would not return the same man. That he would return to black Africa with a new identity, with a new birth certificate, and with a proclamation of good news that the light of the gospel was intruding upon an entire continent. So the Ethiopian eunuch is riding in his chariot, and God makes Philip show up. And this, this Ethiopian was reading a passage of Scripture. Like a sheep he was led to the slaughter, like a lamb before its shearers is silent, so he opens not his mouth. There's our passage. Next verse out of the Greek translation. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch says to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does, this pro- does the prophet say this? Is it about himself? Or is it about someone else? Who's this passage talking about? And, the eun- and Philip responds, He opens his mouth, And beginning with this scripture, He told him the good news about Jesus. There it is. Here's John the Baptist. He saw Jesus coming toward him. And he didn't say, that's my cousin. He said, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Like a lamb that is led into the slaughter, so Him. So so the New Testament guys are consciously... Reading Isaiah 53 and and just recognizing this was direct prophecy fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Now, I saw this this week and then I got a little caught off guard. There was something expected that I I came to as I was wading through the New Testament texts. And yet it, it shouldn't have arrested me like it did Because I've read Philippians chapter 2 before where he says, let this attitude be among you that was in Christ Jesus who, being in the very form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be exploited but made himself nothing taking the form of a servant. Let your attitude be like his. But this is what I found. Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. Now, as I read through this, I want you to see if you can find our text. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet He opened not His mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that's before its shearers is silent. He opened not His mouth. Is that text on Peter's mind? He committed no sin... Remember, the whole point is he suffered not simply to generate power. He suffered to provide a pattern. The way he suffered is the way We suffer. He suffered in His body before He enjoyed His resurrection. So now we, the body of Christ, should expect suffering before we enjoy our resurrection. And when we suffer, we are to do it like Jesus suffered. Let's consider the implications of this. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in His mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten, but continued entrusting himself, entrusting himself, entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. We can't do that part. But why did he do it? In order that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. Verse 5 of our passage. There was no deceit in His mouth. By His wounds you're healed. For you were straying like sheep. He became like us. But have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your own souls. That unexpected call, I mean, I'm expecting to walk through Isaiah 53 and and just stand in awe of the one who suffered on my behalf. And I didn't expect to find a model for how I'm supposed to act when I'm oppressed and abused. When all of a sudden, I suffer in a way that is comparable in some ways to how Jesus is suffering. If I suffer for Jesus' sake and for the Gospel. And the beast, that's the bad guy, was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. The servant opened not his mouth. The beast was boastful. Blasphemy came from him. He was allowed to exercise, allowed by whom? God. The beast is merely a dog on a leash. He's a very powerful dog. That if we don't know the one holding that leash, we should be scared. But because he's like a dog on a leash and the one holding it is our father, new birth certificates, we need not fear. But he was given authority, allowed to exercise it for 42 months, three and a half years. That's the... Symbolic picture of what the tribulation looks like. The window of great tribulation. It opened its mouth and uttered blasphemies against God, blaspheming His name and His dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints, to conquer them. Like he did to Christ on the cross, so too with his people. And authority was given it over every tribe and people and language. And on all who dwell on the earth and worship the beast. Everyone, notice, whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the Lamb that was slain. The image is Isaiah 53. Yet, what Isaiah 53 is, anticipated the actual experience of Christ on the cross, and yet, and yet, before the foundation of the world, it was in the mind of God. It was in the purpose of God. And there were people's names that were not even conceived. Before the foundation of the world, no one was conceived. Not even conceived yet, physically, that whose names were already in the book. They would be conceived under God's wrath, and yet as the elect of God, His purposes would work ultimately through the suffering and triumph of the cross to bring about their salvation. Before the foundation of the world, there are people from every tongue and tribe and language and nation with names in that book of life. And then, under the beast's order, there are people also from every tongue and tribe and language and nation. If anyone has an ear, let him hear. That's Isaiah. If anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword must he be slain. Here is a call for the endurance and faith of the saints. So the mention of Christ's lamb-like slaughter gives rise to the call for the saints to endure in the midst of a world with a beast. So give us application in the
2: sense that are you calling for a complete passivity? I mean, if, if there were an attacker in our church, I mean, this is, this is maybe absurd, but if there were an attacker in our church, would we not be right? Those who are uh, there to protect us, to, to intervene. Um, it, those who were uh, uh, led before ISIS with, in the orange jumpsuits and the black hoods, I mean, I kept <laughs> watching it, I didn't watch all of that, but when I saw that, I kept thinking, man, I'd have done anything to try to just break out of that. You know, I, it wouldn't have been successful, but I would have fought. Is
3: that a wrong reaction? Tell me what you're
1: thinking here in terms of application. No pressure. Steve, you want to go first? (laughs) No, Brother John, that's a great question. With the study we did prior to Isaiah, I gave one day to talking about lethal self-defense. You may recall that. You can go back to my website and find it where I talk about the legitimacy, biblical groundedness, I believe, of lethal self-defense. And yet there are times where led by the Spirit of God, we believe the gospel will spread more by sacrificing my right to lethal self-defense. And it's very difficult to know when that is. When we look at the missionary life of Paul, there were times where he stayed in the city and was stoned, and there were other times where he... Hightailed it out of there in the middle of the night when no one could see him. When the bombs increased in Syria, some of our global partners were questioning how long do we stay? We're willing to stay or do we go? Which is better at this point for the sake of the gospel? And they stayed a long time and then they left. And where did they go? They went to another part of the world that has opened the door for them to minister to Syrian refugees using the exact same language and the doors are wide open for them to, to be ministering. It is very hard for us sitting here to make those calls for those who are over there. And I would suggest that the, in the same way that, that Jesus could actively confront the money changers in the temple and then less than a week later give himself over to be crucified, it takes just a sensitivity to the purposes and voice of God at that moment, to know what faithfulness to the King of Kings and the spread of the gospel should look like. And surrounding yourself with a a group of believers to seek wisdom and prayer. um, What does it look like in that moment? For Jesus, in this moment, it looked like silence. But in other moments, it may look like... um, Verbally, here I stand, I can do no other. And you've just unpacked, extended... I, I, I'm working through, where was I? Um, probably in 2 Timothy, because that's where I've been for a little, a few weeks here, preparing for my teaching. Paul unpacking in the book of Acts, as a backdrop to 2 Timothy, the... Um, the opportunity he was given in the presence of Gentile lords to make his, a case for himself. And in doing that, he proclaimed the gospel went out to all the Gentiles. So knowing when to be silent and when to proclaim, ultimately it's independence on God and for the sake of the name. So
3: let's bring it into practical reality. of people in churches and schools and everything else, uh, what are we going to do to ensure safety for our people here
1: at Bethlehem? Um, the question is, what are we going to do for, to secure safety for our people at Bethlehem? Um, number one, we're going to celebrate the absolute sovereignty of God and that though you die, yet shall you live. Okay, that's where we have to start. That the end of a pistol to, to, to shape a people who, do not, who are not willing to die in order to see others destroyed, but who are willing to die in order to see others saved. To shape a context where we do not fear death. That's what Christ, Hebrews chapter 2, died to bring. The lack, that, that he that we, he could cancel the fear of death so that we do not fear those who can merely kill the body but not the soul. We fear the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell, Matthew 10. So there, there's the foundation, I would say. And then, the... We, we try to create a context wherein um, we as good stewards work for the physical security and safety as best as we legitimately can without compromising our convictions in the eternal um, security that Christ has given us. And there's where in different churches, in different contexts, in different settings, the Council of Elders working with the congregation are going to come to different conclusions. And I will say, those are discussions that the elders are having even right now. Um, But everything starts with a sense that the the reality that um, believers who are pursuing the Lord will die and yet they will live so I didn't give you a great clear answer but it's it's the reality that I, I can't stand up here represent the elders at Bethlehem um, that's not my responsibility right now um, but We don't need to live in a context uh, that is um, pervasive with fear of man. We want to quiet that because it's unnecessary. But But we want to maintain a context of stewardship that values life. And the life in the now, not just the life in the future. And that's part of Scripture too. But
3: you're also valuing the life of those in the congregation. That's that's what
1: I mean. The valuing... Valuing the...
3: Do we have a responsibility to protect them, not necessarily for ourselves individually. We know where we're going. But do we have a responsibility to protect those in our congregation, particularly those that don't know Christ, that are, if they were to be killed, they're going to eternal destiny? Uh,
1: do we have a responsibility to protect the non-believers who come on a Sunday morning it would be a comparable principle to working justice, the the Christian's responsibility to love neighbor in all settings. I think that would drive us to say we have a responsibility to, um, outside the sphere of corporate worship, inside the sphere of corporate worship, we're working for the benefit of life. Um, And to come to conclusive answers as to what that should look like, that's why you need a council of elders who are submitted to the book. That's as much as I will say right now. That's the focus for sure. And the brothers, we know that it's the last hour, 1 John 2 18, because you've heard that the Antichrist is coming, and indeed he's already come. Many Antichrists have already come, rather. uh, 1 John 2 18. The Antichrist, according to the book of Daniel, was to bring false teaching and persecution. In the very ministry of Jesus, he saw Satan fall down to the earth, and he's working a level of deception through persecution and false teaching and torment, and and it's very much in selected pockets right now, but I think the Bible teaches that the day will come when it will go global. But but there's selective pockets throughout history where the people of God have been under deeper levels in a certain sphere of false teaching and persecution. And the call of the text is, follow the Lamb as you were destined to do, wherever it takes you, and have ears to hear, eyes to see that this is right, and endure, whatever that looks like. And when you get to a text like Revelation 20, and it's portraying the heavenly sphere, it's fascinating how it's worded. It gives two different groups. I saw thrones, and seated on them... Those thrones in heaven were those to whom authority to judge was committed. Also, here's the two groups. I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their testimony of Jesus and for the word of God. And I saw the souls of those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. All of them came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. What I'm seeing here are two groups. The martyrs and those who died of old age both of whom stayed faithful to the end. And the call is, wherever your pursuit of Jesus takes you, if it be into captivity, then go. If it be into the sword, then go. Become those, Hebrews chapter 12, of whom the world is not worthy, who have such a treasuring of Christ that says, God, come what may, and it's easy to say, if if all things are well, But come what may, I'm going to trust that there will be a persevering through cancer grace. A persevering through divorce grace. That there's going to be a persevering through the rebellion of a child grace. That whatever it looks like, my perseverance, or there's going to be a persevering grace of standing in the orange jumpsuit with black uh, covering over my head before they slit my neck. And he hasn't given me that kind of grace as I stand here yet. But he's promised that he will pour it out the dawn that it's needed.
3: sacrifice your life for somebody else to help somebody escape or whatever it may be that we can take this a little too literally I and mean, Jesus did speak to Pontius Pilate. You know, there was a few words here and there and they all had great meaning and glory to God. He wouldn't say that he didn't fulfill his prophecy perfectly, but he I think he did, but he spoke.
2: So it's
1: that, that's right. There, there's a, um, a portrait being made here that Christ's suffering is a pattern for us. And that's what I want us to see. That we as His body are called to follow Him as our head wherever He takes us. And the nature of suffering could be in different ways. For Christ, it was direct persecution for what He was enduring everyone will suffer before they reach glory and the question is um will we endure will we have faith final comment before we move on
2: yeah I think, again a lot of these texts. i don't think they're such a prescription for for action in the moment but it's more an interpretation of suffering when this stuff happens to you our immediate thought is either god doesn't care or he's punishing me and this is saying no He's in control. He had like at the end of Romans eight, when Paul's considering our present sufferings, okay. I mean, he goes back and quotes Psalm forty four, which I've mm-hmm. like being led like a sheep to slaughter, mm-hmm. being killed all the day long. It's mm-hmm. like he's willing to lay down his life mm-hmm. in love. And a lot of times, our suffering is just required that I don't understand exactly. exactly what's going on, but I I trust that you are sovereign, mm-hmm. and so I will interpret this suffering for you, you know, Psalm 44 says, for your sake, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's more it's about the interpretation mm-hmm. of our suffering through being faithful and trusting sovereignty.
1: Mm. That's good. Verse 8, let's look there. culminating here on the prophet's perspective on the serpent's suffering that's what verses 1 through 10 are, sandwiched between these statements of Yahweh coming from his own mouth in 52:13 through 15 and 53:11 and 12 culminating here right at the end of chapter 53 in this final unit we get people's perspective on what was going on at the cross And then God's perspective. Let's look at the first two verses. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. This word considered, who considered from his generation that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the sake of the people. That what was going on was about other sins rather than his own. And and it, it it says few weren't thinking this way or sorry, few were thinking this way. they, They weren't considering it in this framework. This verb translated considered seems very likely to actually mean protested. Who stood against it? The NIV translates it that way. Who stood against it? Who actually raised a concern, raised an issue? Most of Jesus' disciples were just gone. They weren't there saying, this is wrong. It just happened. It, it, it moved along. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They don't have a clue that I am the King of kings and the Lord of lords. They don't have a clue that I'm here out of love for them. God so loved the world that He sent His Son that whoever believes in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. They don't recognize what's going on here. Peter, You denied the Holy and Righteous One. You asked for a murderer, Barabbas, to be granted to you. You killed the author of life. That's just an amazing statement about the deity of Christ. You killed the author of life. It's also just amazing that the author of life could die. You killed him. God raised Him from the dead. To this we are witnesses. We saw Him, the resurrected Christ. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. As for His generation, who considered that He was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of My people. You acted in ignorance, as did also your rulers. You didn't grasp the weight of what was going on. But what God foretold by the mouth of all His prophets, like Isaiah, that His Christ would suffer, He has fulfilled. The purpose of God in all this. None of the rulers of this age, Paul says, understood this wisdom of God found in the cross. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Who considered it? Who considered it? Isaiah looks ahead to this generation. It's not his generation. It's Isaiah's generation. It's the generation of the servant Savior. It identifies a different time period. And, and as, as such, it's, it's like when that generation arrives, look at my book. Read my book. You'll be able to see this is direct fulfillment, direct prophecy that's coming about. They made his grave with the wicked, it says in verse 9. Two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, one on the left. Not only a grave with the wicked, but a, a grave with a rich man and his death. I mean, that's unbelievable specificity. And then Matthew goes out of his way to say, when it was evening, there came a rich man, a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who also was a disciple of Jesus, he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Christ. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him and Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb. Jesus was laid in the tomb of this rich man which he had cut in a rock and he rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. When we read this, what we're, we have to read these new covenant documents in light of the predictions that precede They... A lot of times we'll say, this was in order to fulfill, but a lot of times they don't. And it seems to me that this is one of those instances where the mention of the rich man is in order to identify we're seeing fulfillment of Isaiah 53 right here. did he have a sense that I am fulfilling prophecy? That that somewhat like Mary, God raised me up for this purpose. And we don't know. know, The text doesn't fill in those gaps, um, but it's certainly not outside the realm of possibility. Um, What we do know is that Matthew recognized he was fulfilling.
3: When, earlier, when you talked about who would protest, the only two people, if you
2: look at the scripture, the only two people who really came out protesting to a degree was Pilate and his wife. People who have no context for this. And all of a sudden, Pilate's wife was spoken to directly from God.
3: Pilate tried to fight through the endgame.
1: It's a good word. Eat,
3: you know,
0: uh...
1: And Peter, Peter fled, right? Peter denied. That's that's good. We, we know that many were in that exact context. They were experiencing what was going on and experiencing life in that moment. Um, some of you remember Dan Gertner. He was an elder at Bethlehem, a New Testament prophet, Bethel for a while. Now he's down at Southern Seminary. He wrote his dissertation on that very, his doctoral dissertation on that exact um, window between... Um, it was, it, it was like The Rending of the Veil was his, the title. He actually thinks that it was a vision account. Um, I, I'm a little different from him, but that, that the people coming out of the tombs, it's actually talking about people being spiritually made alive rather than physically made alive. That in that moment, people like Joseph of Arimathea were being transformed as the the new creational power of God was intruding into that that experience. That people were, for the first time, like the centurion who had just nailed Christ in, behold, this is the Son of God. However he words it, I, I forget Truly, this was the Son of God. That kind of awakening, by having an encounter, even that window of experiencing the six hours of his time on the cross, um, he was giving evidence of something beyond any any human. It's good.
3: Isn't that true for us today, though? I mean, just as Joseph was led to take the body of Jesus, we're God's workmanship created do good works, which He's prepared in advance for us to do. So every day God is calling us for specific purposes and He's created that work before the beginning of creation for us to do. And if we're connected to Him and abiding in Him we will bear much fruit.
1: Well certainly that that, and in in a less direct way Isaiah anticipated He declared his audience were deaf and blind. But he anticipated a day when the deaf would hear and where they would read God's word in a book. That is, he envisions a day when the eyes of the blind would be open, when the ears of the deaf would hear, and I think we're supposed to actually see ourselves among that. That is, that, this is what I mean, less direct. Like Joseph of Arimathea, we are being awakened to say, wow, I'm fulfilling prophecy that was predicted back in the 700s way before Jesus. That right now I'm among the, those from the nations who've been saved through the servant's work. I'm among those who have been um, given eyes to see and ears to hear. And as I engage in my following of Him, I'm fulfilling prophecy. The difference would be Joseph of Arimathea had more of a specific fulfillment than, than I have in that he was the rich man, a specific one, and no one else in the world ever fulfilled that particular role. That's what I mean by more specific. True. Peter couldn't even
2: imagine him being killed. And Peter you know, Peter knew I, I it was the first time I really thought about it, that in God's plan he had to have a whole mass of powerful people who could not recognize who Jesus was because if they thought for a
1: moment he was God's mm-hmm. son, they wouldn't have nailed him to cross. As you're talking, I'm wondering if the process of partial awakening in the lives of the disciples themselves, if the reason they didn't have immediate awakening was partly because of this, because had they been fully aware, fully aware, I mean, Peter in one breath could say, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and in the very next episode, I mean, it's, it's the very next verse, Jesus is saying, get behind me, Satan, because Peter's saying, you can't go to the cross and die. So had, had they, what it, what it tells us in the Gospel of Mark, is what I, what's on my mind, is that it was at the resurrection that all of a sudden there was the awakening. That even the disciples themselves may have caused more of a ruckus to thwart the purpose of Christ to the cross. What was that? Peter couldn't have just, Right, right, right. There was a level of, of I think, inner challenge. I, I haven't put it, that inner challenge, directly in relation to the purpose of God to bring Christ to the cross, but it relates to this. If the rulers of this age had really understood, they would not have
0: moved.
2: Mm-hmm. Saying, I know it had to be done and I would not even stand in grace now
1: unless He did it. Mm-hmm. But personally, if they said, okay, go go nail on the cross, that's got to happen. I, mean, I couldn't mm-hmm. had, You know,
2: not knowing what I know about
1: Him my Savior. Mm-hmm. He couldn't have been my Savior unless
2: somebody did Yes, yes. I just saw something in God's purpose that a We
1: thought that something awakened And what's ironic is that he's a Gentile. In the book of Mark, there's only two that recognize he's the Son of God. Mark himself in verse 1 testifies that he's the Son of God, but this is Mark writing after the resurrection. Within the book itself, it's the demons in chapter 3 and the Gentile centurion in chapter 16, I think. It's just amazing um, that yeah, God's having to go outside to give testimony to who Christ was because those within didn't recognize it until after verse ten. Well, yeah, we don't have time to go here. Um my perspective in 30 seconds. <laughs> no, we'll... The, the trouble, I will say, the trouble is that I know I've got three verses to go by next week, and I've got eight slides on, chap, on verse 10. So, um, and we're struggling to get through six every week. So I'm like, what am I going um, to do? I've <laughs> <laughs> I'll be gone. So that <laughs> we're going to make it. Other questions? <laughs> Not a question.
2: For Rick's point that, that, you know, uh, uh, Peter would have uh, rushed toward Christ and said, no, no, you know, in the, in the, you know, at the time he was being arrested, being uh, whatever, uh, before Pilate Hall. He would have, uh, Christ would have said at that point, get behind him and him. Yes.
1: Yeah, I mean, he would have. Yeah. I mean, he would have needed to. Christ
3: yeah. Before, and that's where we began this discussion in a way. Yes. It's no way to be quiet. And so now I'm
0: done. Gene?
2: <laughs> <laughs> so when Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do, was that a special situation pre resurrection? Because in a way, couldn't you say that all people who reject
0: Christ are
2: ignorant of who he Really is or they wouldn't reject them, and yet held accountable. So what's the difference?
1: Yeah, the question on the at hand is, how do we understand this dispensation of forgiveness that Christ proclaimed at the cross? Especially when we read in Acts 2, there's thousands of people gathered at Pentecost who we don't get a sense necessarily that they were there 40 days earlier. They've come to Jerusalem for Pentecost. This is one of the three, fe- three feasts. So they're there and Peter says, you killed the son. You did it. So many poets have meditated on the fact that we can't celebrate the cross, until we recognize that we held the hammer. That we drove the nails. By that, I mean we were the ones who, we were born with that innate rebellion against God and His saving purposes. Until He overcame us. So when Jesus says, Father, forgive them, is He asking forgiveness for a select group say, the ones who just nailed Him, but no one else. Somehow a, a dispensation of forgiveness toward them, or is it against all the world? I mean, is this universalism? Some have argued from that text the justification that everyone in the world is saved. No one is going to hell because Jesus pled at the cross and God always listens to His Son. Father, forgive them. But we read the rest of the New Testament and that's absolutely not clear. So, they're There is, and and I'm not absolutely sure where, what the best approach is, but here's one that at least makes sense to me right now. And it grows out of Numbers 15, where the spies, 12 spies go in, 10 spies come back, the giants are too big, by which they're saying God is too little. They've rejected their savior their deliverer who wants to lead them into the promised land. And Moses, as the mediator, without any sense of humility, brokenness, repentance, grief over their sin, Moses just pleads with God as the mediator, standing between God and man and says, God, pardon them. And in Numbers 15, this is what we read. Numbers 14, sorry. Numbers 14, verse 19. Please pardon the iniquity of this people, the mediator declares. According to the greatness of your steadfast love, just as you have forgiven this people from Egypt until now. There's a number of people between this window who have already died. What is the nature of this kind of forgiveness? So we read, verse 20, Then the Lord said, I have pardoned. He said, please forgive them. I have pardoned according to your word, Moses. But truly as I live, all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord. And none of the men whom, who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt, none of them will enter into the land. He pardoned them, and yet He's now judging them. So, My point is that this kind of pardoning doesn't appear to be related to eternal salvation. What it it means is, by the declaration of the mediator, God's immediate wrath, which is absolutely just, is, is held off. That there's a forbearing of His immediate wrath that provides a context for repentance. And so when Jesus declares... Father, forgive them. What I'm saying is that the language of forgiveness is broad enough to not only include forgiveness of sin in such a way that it results in your eternal salvation, but a forgiveness that allows for us to maintain relationship, for me not to pour my wrath out upon you immediately, for you for a context wherein you can continue... Uh, Having some level of relationship with me wherein you could still have an opportunity in the next week, in the next month, while you're still breathing, to humble yourselves before me and receive eternal salvation. That's, it's not easy, but right now that's that's kind of how I'm reading that, that's how I'm reading that text. Let me close in prayer. Father, I thank you that you are overall. We celebrate that Christ has suffered once for all that we might be brought to you. The righteous for the unrighteous. And you count this just. So that if we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us. You call us not to sin, but if we sin, we have an advocate. If we have believed, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the Righteous One. And we celebrate that he stands even now on our behalf, interceding before you and that you always listen to your son. Thank you that you did not wipe out all the rebels who killed your son, but that you provided a way of escape. We thank you for giving us a book, rather than condemning us immediately. We are condemnable, but Christ has paid, Christ has purchased, and we celebrate such provision. Give us hearts that stand in awe of you increasingly. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.
0: Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi, professor of Old Testament and Biblical Theology at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at www.bcsmn.edu. For more information on Dr. Daroshi, visit online at www.jasonderoshi.com. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who reigns, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.